Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. Today we're going to be looking at a group of philosophers. These are called the Cynic Philosophers. And we're going to finish with the story of an ancient cult leader. Now, the term cynic is one that we actually use today. We say cynic, we say cynical, and it applies generally to people who are sort of bitter, hard to get along with, nasty in their disposition. They have personalities that always see the downside of everything. They're incredibly negative people. They don't trust anything. They don't believe in anything. So the idea is still with us. The origin of the term, though, is really intriguing. Cynic comes from the ancient Greek word kineskos, meaning dog-like, to act like a dog. That word turns into kanos in Latin, and obviously that's where we get canine from. To ancient Greeks, the dog was the most shameless of all animals. A dog will just sort of do whatever it wants, and it doesn't care if people are watching. It'll go to the bathroom whenever it wants to, copulate whenever it wants to. It doesn't really pay any attention to its surroundings in that way. So by calling these philosophers dog-like, the idea was these people are living like dogs, and they live with a sense of shamelessness. This shameless quality, though, really was the goal of cynic philosophy. Cynic philosophers wanted to shock people. They wanted to shatter norms and customs. But the idea was to shock people out of the fog of everyday thinking, sort of give them a jolt to move into a new way of looking at things, change their perspective in a dramatic and powerful way. So there was a method to the madness there, you might say. If you go through the centuries of ancient Greek and Roman history, there were quite a few cynic philosophers. We're going to zero in on a few of them that are the most interesting, the most famous. And one of the earliest ones was Diogenes. Diogenes was from a town on the southern coast of the Black Sea called Sinope. He and his father were town officials or civil servants in Sinope. They had some kind of a job connected to the local mint, which meant that they made coins. There's a story of some kind of incident of embezzlement, and we don't know what happened to the father, but Diogenes is said to have fled his hometown, headed for the Greek mainland to escape prosecution, and he goes to Athens. Now, this is in the early 4th century BC, the early 300s BC. This is after the Great Peloponnesian War. So Athens was not quite the superpower that it had been the century earlier. But it was still very important because it was fast becoming the center of philosophy in the Greek world. And Plato, who was the most famous student of Socrates, had gathered a group of students around him, almost a circle of followers. This is going to lead to the establishment of Plato's Academy. Diogenes did attend some lectures by Plato, but he was known for disturbing them. He would start trouble. He would start arguments. One day, Plato and his students are trying to come to the conclusion of how do you define a man, a human being? How would you come up with a definition? And Plato and his students decided that the definition of a man was a featherless biped, meaning walks on two legs but has no feathers, of course. Diogenes listened in that day. He returned the next day with a chicken that had had all its feathers plucked, and he held it up and said, Behold a man. At a certain point in his life, Diogenes took up the life of a homeless man. He lived in an alleyway in Athens in a huge clay jar. This is a kind of jar that's called a pithos jar in ancient Greece. They used them for storage generally, but this one was big enough for him to actually sleep in. And he became a little bit of a celebrity. He was actually referred to by people as Socrates gone insane. He was known for getting into fights, for doing things like urinating and defecating in public. One day he was seen carrying a lantern, an oil lamp, 
in broad daylight, middle of the afternoon, around the streets of Athens, shining it around. And when people asked him what he was doing, he said, well, I'm looking for an honest man in this town. I don't think I'm going to be able to find one. He was captured by pirates on a sea voyage to a nearby island called Aegina, and he ended up being sold as a slave, and he was purchased by a man named Xeniades, who was from the town of Corinth. Xeniades gave him his freedom once he realized who this person was, that he was a well-known philosopher. And so now Diogenes continued that lifestyle, but now in Corinth, still living in an alley, still living in a clay jar. He's said to have actually written books, including a book on the ideal city, a kind of republic of Diogenes. None of these books have survived, though. In many ways, the most famous story of his life is when he had a chance to meet Alexander the Great. Now, this was before Alexander really was known as the Great. He was king of Macedonia and had become in many ways the ruler of the Greek mainland, just like his father Philip II had before him. Alexander had crushed a rebellion by the city of Thebes with great brutality, too. And he was in Corinth making arrangements so that the Greek mainland was going to be well-run and docile and pacified before he started his famous invasion of the Persian Empire, which is what's going to turn him into Alexander the Great eventually. So after the business was done, the important people, the town fathers in Corinth, said to Alexander, Well, King Alexander, we have many things to see in town. Would you like us to show you around, do some sightseeing? And Alexander said, I would like to meet this Diogenes who I keep hearing about. And they tried to talk him out of it. They said, oh, no, 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 you don't want to meet him. Because they were afraid what Diogenes would say, right? He was hard to get along with. He might anger Alexander. Alexander insisted, and he was the king, so there wasn't really anything they could do about it. So they took Alexander to meet Diogenes. Diogenes was sitting on the ground outside of his jar reading a book. He took no notice of Alexander and his entourage when he got near. Alexander finally sort of cleared his throat, got his attention, and introduced himself. He said, Diogenes, it's a pleasure to meet you. I've heard a lot about you. I'm King Alexander of Macedonia, and if there's anything that's in my power to give you, just ask. Diogenes looked at him and said very calmly, right now I am trying to read and you are blocking the sun. Please move out of the way. And everybody that was watching this got very, very frightened. They were afraid that Alexander not only would have Diogenes killed, but might order a massacre of everyone in Corinth, have the city destroyed, because that's exactly what happened to the Thebans. There have been widespread executions, women and children have been sold into slavery, and the buildings of Thebes have been destroyed almost completely. But Alexander didn't get angry. He smiled, turned, and walked away. And the legend is that he said, if I were not Alexander, I would want to be Diogenes. Another part of that story is that Diogenes overheard him and said, if I were not Diogenes, I would still want to be Diogenes. Diogenes had just as much disregard for funeral customs and ideas of an afterlife. He did have people who were students or followers, you could say, but there was a discussion of his death that came up at one point. And he said, well, when I die, just throw my corpse outside the city limits to be fed to the stray dogs. And the people listening to him said, oh, that's horrible. How could you say something like that? Because in ancient Greek culture, if you didn't get a proper burial, you would end up wandering the earth as a ghost in torment. It was the worst fate that could befall you. There are a lot of Greek myths that have this theme. It's worked into Greek tragedies, the tragic plays that were produced in Athens like Antigone. And there's even a story from the Peloponnesian War of some Athenian ship captains who ended up being put to death. They had won a sea battle, 
but they had not gone back to rescue the men who were in the water from the wrecked ships or pick up any of the dead bodies floating in the sea because a storm was blowing in and they were afraid that they would lose more ships and men. There was a backlash when they got home. So back to Diogenes. When the people who heard him expressed their dismay at that idea, he laughed and said, well, you should still do it, but okay, you can put a stick in my hand so I can fight those dogs off. And they said, that's ridiculous. You're not going to be able to fight them off. You won't be able to move. You won't be able to see or hear. You won't have any sensation of anything. And he said, exactly. I'll be dead. That's why it doesn't matter what happens to my corpse. Moving a little bit later in time, there was a cynic philosopher named Crates, who is said to have been a student of Diogenes, and he married a woman named Hipparchia. Hipparchia was from a fairly wealthy family. She somehow met Crates, heard him speak. It's not really a very clear story, but she immediately fell in love with the guy and decided she wanted to marry him. So she told her parents. Her parents said, you're crazy. You're not going to marry that guy. But she insisted. And when they still wouldn't relent, she went so far as to threaten to commit suicide unless they would agree to the marriage. So they sent for somebody to get Crates and bring him to the house. When Crates arrived, they told him what was going on. They brought Hipparchy in and they said, our daughter wants to marry you. He said, she's crazy. I have nothing to offer her. She said, I don't care. I want to marry you. So he agreed. They got married. They entered into what they later called their dog marriage because they both live like cynic philosophers. There's even a story that they took a lot of the valuables that were part of her property, loaded them onto a ship, and dumped it all into the Mediterranean. Kind of an unlikely story. Don't think her relatives would have allowed her to do that. But Hipparchia developed a reputation for being able to out-argue male philosophers in debates. And she's the only woman who appears in a famous collection called The Lives of Eminent Philosophers that was written in Roman times. The last cynic philosopher we're going to look at is in many ways the weirdest that I'm covering today. This was Peregrinus. And our main source of information about Peregrinus is a writer named Lucian. I've covered other writings by Lucian, other stories. He really is one of the greatest Roman authors, although he's hardly known to anyone today. But Lucian wrote a biography of Peregrinus, one where he portrays him in an incredibly negative light. Peregrinus's past seems to have been really, really questionable, too. He was from somewhere in Asia Minor, as the Romans would call it. Today, that would be known as Turkey. As a young man, he committed crimes. He was caught having committed adultery with someone's wife and was severely beaten. There's also a story that he murdered his own father, strangled him, and the excuse he gave was that his father had asked him to do it, saying, I don't want to live past the age of 60. Well, before he could be prosecuted for that murder, he fled his hometown, traveled around for the rest of his life, many, many decades. And what he would do is he would get to know a group of people and, you know, they would help him out with money and food, a place to stay. And then when they got tired of him, he'd have to move on. When he couldn't find people to take him in, he would live as a homeless person. He did this for many years in Egypt, where he shaved his head, smeared himself with mud, and sort of wandered around. He joined a small Christian congregation. Now, this is in the second century AD. So Christianity's been around a little bit over 150 years or so. But he converted to Christianity, joined this group, but nobody could really tell if he was sincere. He was expelled from that congregation, and it's not really clear why he did something forbidden. That's what Lucian said. He went all the way to the capital city of Rome, and he started insulting the emperor in public in the streets. He lucked out on this one because the emperor at the time was Antoninus Pius, 
And Antoninus Pius ruled over probably the quietest time period in the history of the entire Roman Empire. And so Peregrinus was not put to death. Really, if it had been almost any other emperor, he would have been executed. But the city prefect, who was kind of like the mayor of Rome, an imperial official, just kicked him out of town, exiled him from the city for what he was saying. Now, he's getting on in years at this point. Peregrinus is about 70, and he went to Olympia. The Olympic Games were going to be celebrated. They were celebrated every four years in antiquity. This was the year AD 165. And Peregrinus did have a little bit of a following at this point. There were some people who were almost disciples, you could say. And he made an announcement that at midnight on a certain night, he was going to construct a funeral pyre, he was going to burn himself to death, and he was going to become a god. This was an emulation of Heracles, or Hercules as the Romans called him. In the myth, that is what Hercules ended up doing. At midnight on the appointed evening, started to dig a pit in the ground, fill it with firewood and oil, other flammable materials. A whole crowd has gathered, wondering if he's really going to go through with it. Lucian actually hints that Peregrinus hoped that the crowd would talk him out of it. And when he realized that they were not about to do so, he decided to go ahead and do what he had planned. So the fire was lit. Peregrinus took off his clothes, made sort of a last salute to the crowd, and leaped into the pit. The story's not over, though. It gets even stranger than this. Because some of his followers insisted that they saw a dove fly out of the fire. That that was Peregrinus's soul, and it was undergoing what was called an apotheosis. He was turning into a god. Other eyewitnesses said that they did not see a dove at all, and an actual brawl broke out. A fistfight broke out right next to the guy's funeral pyre. And there were some people who claimed, for weeks and months afterwards, that they saw Peregrinus walking around clad all in white, as if he had resurrected. We're going to turn now to the story of an ancient cult leader, Alexander of Abanotaikos. Most of the story that I'm about to tell you comes from Lucian, the same author that did the biography of Peregrinus. And his attitude towards Alexander of Abanotaikos is pretty similar. Tall, good-looking, intelligent, shrewd, extremely charismatic, but that he used all of these natural gifts for evil. Originally, he was a gigolo, a male prostitute. At some point, he studied under a doctor, and he learned some elements of medicine. He went to Pella, one of the cities of Macedonia, purchased a huge tame snake. Now, Macedonia was known for cults related to snakes. There's actually a number of stories about the mother of a much more famous Alexander, Alexander the Great, king of Macedonia, that his mother Olympias was dedicated to some kind of religious rites involving snakes. So when Alexander purchased the snake, he seemed to have in mind that he was going to try to do something related to religion. He made friends with a singer named Coconus, and they decided that they wanted to start a business where they would charge people to get their questions answered by an oracle, somebody who would speak the words of a god. So Lucian describes this as a completely nefarious scheme from the get-go. They're going to cheat people out of their money. Now, they had a debate on where they should actually start this oracle. Alexander said, let's do it in my hometown of Abanotychus. The town is full of gullible people. So he grows his hair very long. He dresses only in white. He would pretend to go into trances. He would use a plant that's commonly called in English soapwort, and he would chew chunks of the soapwort to make his mouth foam. He also decided to make something better than just a living snake. He made a head with a face that looks somewhat human and somewhat like a snake. The mouth and the tongue were controlled by a cord made of horsehair so he could make it talk. 
When they went to Abonotychus, there was a temple to the god Asclepius that was under construction, the ancient Greek and Roman god of healing. Alexander took a goose egg, carefully opened it up, cleared out the yolk inside, and he hid a baby snake inside the egg, sealed it up, hid the egg in the foundations of the temple that was under construction, under the dark of night. A few hours later, after sunrise, he appeared in the marketplace and very loudly predicted that the god Asclepius would be reborn in the foundation, pointed to the area where they should start digging. They began to dig. They discovered the egg. He told them to crack open the egg, and lo and behold, there was the snake. Alexander was lucky that the snake had actually survived inside the egg for a few hours. So the people of the town are amazed. They go, Alexander is a prophet. He is an oracle of the god Asclepius and also the god Apollo. Now, the next morning... Coconus ran and gathered people, said, you must come see Alexander. They went inside the darkened room, and Alexander was sitting there with the adult tame snake that he had that was wrapped around him. He claimed that this was the snake that had been found in the egg, that it had grown magically overnight to this huge adult size. Tucked in his elbow was the puppet that he had made. He referred to the snake god as Gleekon. Gleekon literally means sweetie. It's the same root of the word that we get, glycemic index, glucose, and so on. It does relate to sugar. So now Alexander and Coconus can start a thriving business. People would pay money to them to ask questions of the god Gleekin. What the average person could only afford was to write out their question on a piece of papyrus. This was a paper, more or less, that was used in the ancient Greek and Roman worlds. They would write it up, roll it up, and seal it with wax. And then they would press a ring, personal seal, and they would know if it had been broken. Alexander came up with a method where they would take a plaster cast of the ring impression in the wax. And then the wax would be melted with a hot needle so that the papyrus could be opened up and read. He would come up with an answer, and then he would re-roll the papyrus, reseal it with wax, and use that plaster cast to recreate a forged version of the person's original seal. So this would be handed back to the suppliant, your answer is such and such. And people would be amazed because they would say, but this was never opened. The god must have seen through and been able to read my question. The really wealthy people who wanted to get responses from the oracle would actually get a chance to meet the snake god Gleekin. They would be brought into the presence of Alexander and Gleekin, and Gleekin's head would speak to them. Alexander would do this by secretly pulling at the cord of horsehair to make the mouth and tongue move, but the voice came from elsewhere, one of his accomplices or employees. It's not stated whether it's Coconus or somebody else. This person would actually speak using the windpipes of birds called cranes, and this would create a very otherworldly sound of the snake god Gleekin. Now, Alexander and Gleekin's fame started to spread far and wide, and he got the perks of fame as well, too. Alexander had many affairs, and he got the opportunity to sleep with a fairly large number of married women. Married women who were having a hard time getting pregnant would sleep overnight in the temple. Apparently, this was done completely with their husband's knowledge and even their blessing. Alexander would actually appear dressed as Gleekin, and he would impregnate these women. Alexander also started to celebrate various kinds of rituals that a large number of people had come to the temple to participate in. And Alexander was dressed in gilded leather, like he had golden skin. Lucian claimed he actually did go to the temple, that he somehow managed to get a meeting with Alexander, said, I know that you're a fake and I'm going to expose you as such. But Alexander calmed him down a little bit, said, let's try to put this behind us here, this disagreement. Said, where are you going to next? And Lucian told him, I'm going to another nearby town called Amastris down the coast. So Alexander said, you can use one of my boats. I'll give you free passage on one of my ships to Amastris. The crew had been secretly instructed by Alexander to drown Lucian once they were in the Black Sea. And it was only the actions of the ship's captain. He intervened to stop this from happening, saved the life of Lucian. Lucian's account ends with the death of Alexander. He said to have died at age 70 of gangrene and maggots in his leg. 
Now, how much can we trust the story of Alexander? Alexander of Anatychus was, in fact, a real person, a highly regarded religious oracle in the late 2nd century AD. We have found coins with pictures of Gleekin. We also have statues of Gleekin that have been uncovered by archaeologists. Archaeologists have worked in the modern Turkish town of Inadolu on the site of the ancient Abonotychus. They've not been able to identify the site of the temple. Alexander had a daughter that married the Roman governor Rutilianus, and this brought him to the attention of people within the imperial circle. This was the time of the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius, when a terrible plague struck the Roman Empire. It came from the east, roughly from the area of Mesopotamia. We are not exactly sure what the disease was, but our best guess is it was smallpox. And the death toll across the Roman Empire was massive due to this pandemic. People asked Alexander and Glecon what they should do about the plague. They responded with a stanza of poetry, stating, Long-haired Phoebus, meaning the god Apollo, will dispel the plague cloud. And their stories that people wrote that verse on amulets that they hung above their doors. Archaeologists have actually found an inscription on stone with that exact phrasing that's also in Lucian. The Emperor Marcus Aurelius himself asked a question of Glecon. This was during his war with a tribe called the Marcomanni along the Danube River. The war was not going well. Alexander responded by stating, Take two lions and throw them into the Danube River as a sacrifice. And if this is done, there will be a great victory. It wasn't as difficult as you might think to get a hold of lions because Romans used lions in gladiator shows all over the empire. He had two lions brought to the banks of the Danube and thrown in, but they didn't drown. They swam to the opposite shore, where they were killed by Marcomannic soldiers. When battle was joined soon afterwards, the Romans were defeated badly. This wasn't the first time that the prediction of an oracle had not come to pass. Alexander explained it away by saying, well, Glecon was a little bit vague about who exactly would win a great victory if the lions were thrown into the river. We have evidence that Alexander of Abonotychus was venerated after his death as some kind of a god or demigod as well, too. So if he was a charlatan, he was a very successful one. That concludes this episode. The musical pieces that you heard were Magical Gravitation by RoyaltyFreeMusic.com and Phantom from Space by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for joining me, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.